Welcome to Witch Talks, a series for spiritual seekers, witches, and enlightened souls. I'm Hannah the Suburban Witch, an intuitive tarot reader, astrologer, and eclectic witch, and I hope you're ready to get up close and personal with your favorite witches. In this episode, I'm chatting with Kathleen Borealis, a geologist and lifelong pagan who is the host of Borealis Meditation and Nature Science Podcast for pagans that has been going for 10 years. I'm so looking forward to sharing Kathleen's work and wisdom with you today. So let's get into it. Now, for those of you tuning in via my YouTube channel today, this will be an audio only episode with some pretty stock footage. Hey, Kathleen, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So great to have you here and I'm sure you, sure you do so much more than what I've briefly introduced you as. So do you want to start off by telling us a little bit more about the work that you do in the world? Yeah, so um, in my professional life, I am a research scientist. I work in natural hazards. So um, I work pretty closely with the earth in my professional life. Um, and then I've also been a lifelong pagan. And so about 10 years ago, when I was in grad school, I started a podcast as a way to kind of give back to the community because I kind of followed shinies into um, earth science and then turned around and realized that there weren't many of us there. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. This is so cool. So uh, my podcast is kind of like an outreach and education thing that I do to kind of give back to the community and share all of the cool stuff that I've been learning. That is very interesting. Now I'm going to sidebar here into your astrology chat because we've just pulled that up and it's very, very interesting that this community <laughs> aspect is something that's really, really interesting to you and I will tell you why. So for Kathleen, her son is in the 11th house. Now the 11th house for anyone who is not familiar with that in astrology is the house of community. Now your moon is also in this same house and they both fall under the sign of Aries. You've also got your Mercury and your Venus there. There's a whole host of things. It's not quite something we'd call a stellium, which would be a very intense energy all within five degrees. So they're a little spread out, but still that's a lot of energy. Your sun and your moon are big parts of your personality and then your Mercury and your Venus as well. So major placements there. So the first thing is the fact that you've said community. Now, the 11th house is all about outreach. It's all about bringing people together or standing up for a cause. And it's all about that connection that we have with the greater community around us. So the fact that that's something that you do and that's how you express yourself is totally lined up with your sun sign. And your moon sign means it's going to bring you that emotional validation that you desire to have all of these people sort of on the same path that you're on and feeling like you're all interconnected and on this greater mission. So really interesting that that's woven into your birth chart as well. Did you know that about yourself? I didn't. So actually, I have an interesting relationship with astrology. So my grandmother um, was really into it. And she did my whole chart when I was born. Mm -hmm. And um, my mom, even though like I consider myself being raised kind of hippie, she didn't want to see it because she said she didn't want it to influence how I was raised. So even though I had it done for me when I was born, I had never seen any of it. And we never really talked about it really um, at all growing up. And I didn't find out that it had been made until I was a teenager. Um, wow. And at that point, it no longer existed. So I kind of grew up with that kind of like, I don't know, I always had kind of a light relationship with it, you know, kind of picked that up from my mom, like not wanting it to kind of dictate my mm -hmm. path and kind of forging my path as it is. So I I've always find it really interesting, but it's not something that I look into too deeply for myself. 
So the next thing that we have there is all of those placements being in Aries. Now, obviously you're working with the earth. I know you do a lot of work with um, crystals, rocks, you are a geologist, mm-hmm. uh, but I know yes. you, you have this, this fascination with volcanoes as well. And Aries being this absolute fire sign, they like things that are exciting, things that are a little bit dangerous as well. So when you look at careers, that is absolutely right up your alley. Things that um, might go boom is something that comes through for Aries quite a lot. <laughs> So having that as your sun sign, that's how you express yourself. Your moon sign, that's how you your emotions are validated, right? So you need a little bit of adrenaline um, to, to make sure that you're feeling, you know, yourself. You feel like you are who you are when you've got that adrenaline pumping through you as well. Um, and that's some, that, that exciting side of life. It's, it's explosive. Now, your rising sign is actually in Gemini. Now, that means that what you're actually here to do is share a message. Now, Geminis often do this, wait for it, with writing or podcasts. So things like getting their word out there, whether that's with their voice through sometimes singing, but often talking words, writing podcasts, that sort of thing is how Geminis like to spread their message. So the fact that you're spreading a message that is bringing your community together that all weaves in so that's fantastic that you've almost you've not known what your path is from a young age even though that yeah astrology chart was there but you've done it anyway (laughs) (laughs) so you've found your path um and the last one I just wanted to point out the planet Jupiter often is our joy and it is the things that sort of light us up and make us feel really expansive and you've got that in Aquarius and Aquarius is this sign of things that are a little bit new age, a little bit futuristic, a little bit out there, not usually the status quo. So it's almost like you've found this way of weaving that little bit oddness into your everyday role, what you do basically. So there might be a lot of sciencey people around you and you're kind of that one that's like, oh, I'm with everyone, but I'm kind of standing out a bit, but I kind of like that as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. (laughs) How does that all sit for you? That's really interesting, actually. Yeah, I mean, I knew I had a lot of Aries and the joke is always that I study volcanoes and I am a volcano, so. (laughs) Now, back to what you do. So you say you aim to be a friendly, approachable bridge between the pagan and the earth science community. So how do you do that exactly? So um, a lot of what I do in terms of the podcast is I either do specific topics that I talk about or I will talk about current events. Um, and then solicit any questions people have. So these are usually have to do with like large volcanic eruptions, uh, tsunamis and earthquakes. And um, there is a lot of really good outreach that's done, but I think also sometimes there's a bit of a language barrier. And even though we're all speaking English, one of the things I stress is that you can use the same word, but if you don't have the same definition for it, then you can have two different conversations without realizing it. So I try to be really careful and kind of cognizant of the two different languages, you know, the spiritual community's language versus the science community's language, and try to avoid words that have meanings that are different in each. So that would be something like energy or frequency. Mm-hmm. Those are going to have completely different meanings. Um, and so I try to kind of explain things in a bunch of different ways so that hopefully they click. Um, and then also kind of bring in topics that will be more interesting to the spiritual community. One of the things that I find um, really fascinating about specifically earthquakes is that your brain will kind of come up with a million different ideas of what that just was before it will land on earthquake. And so Mm -hmm. that's always really interesting, I think, to talk to people about that and, you know, just the experience of feeling 
the earth move under your feet. And, you know, the, um, another topic I'm really interested in is deep time. So this concept of um, the earth moves on its own time scale, and we're very used to our human time scale and kind of, you know, bridging that topic of, you know, realizing that the earth and the changes around us have these different time scales that they work on. And sometimes they overlap with our time scales and sometimes they don't. Um, and so you can work within different time scales. Uh, and that's something that I find really interesting. So just trying to be a someone who's not afraid of questions. And, you know, a lot of what I find is that there's, you know, people who are very interested in spirituality sometimes haven't had a lot of science background or they didn't really like science that much. And so there's usually like one or two little pieces of their education that's missing and people can kind of jump and kind of go in a, a direction. And so I always find it really interesting to kind of come back and figure out where that little piece is missing. And so the the kind of the, the tangents people go off on, I find are really fascinating. So it, it not only helps me educate, you know, the pagan community and the spiritual community, but it also helps me be a better teacher, you know, because I can see where these important gaps are and where those leaps in knowledge kind of, you know, if you, if X, then Y, but if X is missing, you can go to like Z. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just, just being someone who's approachable, especially when there's natural hazards, because they tend to, it's scary, you know, it's something that's unpredictable, there's a lot of uncertainty, and, you know, a lot of what we know is not very satisfying, you know, if there's a large earthquake, it's like, okay, there was a large earthquake, this is where it happened, this is how big it was, and, you know, that's not a good explanation, that's not, for humans, that's not very satisfying, so kind of understanding kind of the emotional side of it too, to have that, you know, those conversations about these types of events. Do you ever dip into the spiritual reasons behind why these events might be happening or is that something you stay clear from? No. So because I work in geology, um, I work very closely with the earth. So I would say that my, in my practice, I'm working more in a deep time, time scale. Mm -hmm. And um, I tend to, so my, I think my worldview tends to be a little bit different. Um, so, you know, in my, my worldview, you know, the earth is a planet. Uh, it has its own cycles in terms of the solid earth. Uh, a lot of what we think about when we think about earth actually is just the crust. So we think a lot about the surface, the plants and the animals. And that's kind of, to me, what I call the biosphere. So it's the life that's on the planet. Um, and I work a lot with the hard rock, so like the solid earth itself. And that has its own kind of heartbeat and why it does the things it does. And so I try really hard, you know, in my professional life, what we do is we try to understand what the cycles are. What are the signs that we can get from the earth that something is going to happen so that we can anticipate it kind of like, you know, the weather forecast, right? So we're trying to forecast events, look for, you know, commonalities between different events, um, but, you know, unfortunately the earth is, I don't know, it kind of has personality and different volcanoes have different personalities, different faults behave different ways. So we look for the commonalities to try to kind of forecast the future. Um, and we do the best we can to understand the world around us. So I think in terms of spirituality, it's, it's more understanding that humans are part of this system and we're part of the biosphere and we're part of what makes our planet our planet, but we are part of it. We're not separate from it. And each part does its own thing and it has its own reasons for doing its own things. And sometimes we can understand and sometimes we can't. 
and um, there's a lot of uncertainty and human brains aren't really designed to deal with uncertainty very well. So I've trained myself to work with uncertainty and to kind of poke the edges of uncertainty and kind of try to tease out what we can. Uh, so, you know, I guess the answer is that it's a lot of unknown. So in that way, it's very similar to a spiritual experience where you're, you know, probing the unknown. Um, but I guess what I do is I just try to read what the earth is telling us about what it's going to do so that I can help people live with the earth, not try to live against it. I love that. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful way to look at it. And your, so your colleagues and your peers, do they, do they know about your witchy spiritual side? Do you keep that hidden from them and how do they react to it if they do know? So I would say that when I started out in science, I was pretty open. I also went to a pretty liberal school. So, you know, it, it wasn't super uncommon. Um, but as I got further into science, so as I went from undergrad into grad school and into more research heavy institutions, I find that people tend to be more of what I would call fundamental fundamentalist atheists. Mm -hmm. uh, if they have an opinion, it's very anti-religion in general. Yes. And you will find some religious people, but they are pretty anti-religion. So I tend to just not bring it up. I consider it kind of on the realm of things that are on a need to know basis and my colleagues don't need to know. I do have several friends that are within the scientific community who do know. Um, I have a few friends who are also pagan who are within the scientific community. And it's something that we talk about occasionally, but you know, it's kind of the people who I tell are the people who don't think it's a big deal. Yes, understood. And, you know, <laughs> working in Southeast Asia, I do work with a lot of religious people as well. Um, and Indonesia is a, a Muslim country. So I think it helps me understand working with people who are religious a little bit better. But it's, again, not something we really talk about. It's just something that I try to bring to the relationship without, like, expressing it. Because I don't want to cause any, you know... I don't, I don't want to talk about it if people are going to get offended or anything like that. Yeah, understood. And especially if you're working in countries that are predominantly maybe another religion that might not be so favorable towards yeah. pagan or witchcraft, then that's definitely understandable. But I love that you can still use it to see into other people's worldview a little more as well. Yeah, and I think it helped me a lot when I lived and worked in Hawaii as well. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, Hawaii has a pretty strong um, cultural identity still. And that cultural identity, I think, has really helped them in terms of dealing with natural hazards. Uh, they have a very strong understanding of the volcano and Pele. Um, and that I saw during the last large eruption had a huge impact on how people responded to the eruption. I have some friends who had moved recently and they are absolutely traumatized, like 100% they are traumatized. They have mm -hmm. PTSD from that eruption. Every time there's an earthquake, they just, you know, they go into fight or flight and people that have lived there a lot longer and are very steeped in kind of the mythology of Pele and understanding um, kind of the stories and the history, the cultural history are just like, they lost their house. Sure. <laughs> they just go move somewhere else. All right. Pele wanted that house. Okay. That's cool. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. That is, that is a beautiful almost way to look at it and also lead into the next question. So Obviously, the people of Hawaii, they have brought this knowledge of, of this volcano into their lives, basically. Now, do you mm -hmm. think your work as a geologist, has that impacted your spiritual worldview at all or the way that you 
go about your practice? Oh, 100%. Absolutely 100%. So um, when I started in my spiritual path, I was quite young. Um, I read a bunch of books and I was always interested in the natural world around me. And it was kind of more of the, you know, the summer camp uh, experience with it. And it was mostly focused on plants and animals in my area. And I still had a very strong feeling of humans being separate from the natural world. So it was going into nature to learn about it. But the more science I took, the more uh, I learned about, the more I, I saw you know, that you can read the history of the continents in the landscape around you. You can see the evidence of the glaciers in the Northwest. You can see the volcanic activity. You can see the different rain patterns in different sides of the island in Hawaii. Uh, and then a really kind of, when I studied a little bit of biology, this understanding of, you know, being part of life and that we are not separate from the rest of the species on the planet. We are part of this big family that's life that came from, I don't know, we're still arguing about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we all evolved and you know, we just happened to be a very successful species. And my husband put it best the other night, he was saying, you know, on every continent except Africa, we're an invasive species. <laughs> And I think that really puts it in perspective because, you know, we think of ourselves as separate from different species and we tend to define what's an invasive species versus a native species based on our timescales. Um, and, you know, when you are working in science and you're especially in geology, you're working on these really long timescales. And so you see that how you define things like that really depends on where you put that line in time and mm -hmm. how it can shift and change. And so it really kind of changed my whole mindset and, you know, kind of brought spirituality out of a separate part of my life and brought it with my understanding and kind of made it kind of completely cohesive and just a complete full lifestyle, you know, I mean, like, it's permeates everything that understanding I consider myself, I've, I've taken to calling myself a hardcore animist. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's everything I, I have a relationship with absolutely everything I talk to the rocks around me, I talk to the trees, I talk to the animals, I'm constantly making fun of the birds out my window, you know, I see myself as part of the ecosystem that I live in. And even though it's an urban ecosystem, it is still an ecosystem and seeing my place within that ecosystem and then understanding that, you know, even the pigeons outside are part of that ecosystem. Uh, so yeah, I think it's completely changed my perspective and how I practice my spirituality. That's fantastic. And do you find it's gone the other way as well? So has your spiritual practice taught you anything about geology or about the work that you do? Has it brought anything in that regard? I think it really has. Uh, one of the things I think people forget is that science is made up of individuals. Um, and just like any group of individuals, we all have our issues. And I think one of the things we forget as scientists is that we have emotional responses to things. And in science, you're trying to be as impartial as possible, but that's not always possible. So having a spiritual practice gives me kind of this emotional outlet. So when I work on a volcano, you know, I can take a moment have my moment and be just like, oh my God, I'm in love with this volcano. Oh my God, you're so cool. I'm so happy I'm here. Right. And then I can go back to work. You know, I have that, I have that ability to kind of separate that. And I think in science, we've all seen that person that has this idea that they're in love with. And you're like, it's just doesn't work, man. Just give it up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I can take that and be like, I had this idea. I love this idea. Okay. It's not working. Damn it. 
Yeah. You know? So I think that it's given me a really healthy balance and a really healthy outlet. And also having that kind of relationship with something like a volcano or a fault system or a landscape, you know, it kind of gives you this appreciation of they're not all the same, you know, one volcano may look just like another one, but they all have their own personality. And so you have to treat them that way. You have to treat it like meeting someone, you know, and learning who they are. You know, you can have an idea of this is how humans behave, but each individual is different. Each individual will behave in a different way in a specific situation. So you can know in general how a volcano behaves, but each individual one has its own personality. And, you know, I think that a lot of people with the natural hazards are animus they just don't quite realize it right exactly because they they you know they don't think of it that way but they they have that mentality where they think of things as an individual you know or with a personality we always joke about different volcanoes having different personalities and it's true they do and the people who i trust to when they work you know, when there's a volcanic eruption are the ones who've worked on it the longest because they know that volcano. And it's a knowing that you can't get from data. It's a knowing that you get from like that personal relationship. And I just think that they don't, you know, the words aren't quite there in the field to kind of really quantify and you know appreciate that. But I think it's something that, you know, I think it's made me a much better scientist actually, because I have a nice you know, I have this balance in my life and I'm able to disconnect. I'm able to like express my emotional attachment to things in a healthy way. And then I can disconnect from that and then connect to work and be very, you know, regimented and impartial when I do my work. And then I can take a step back and especially because of natural hazards, you are working with things that are deadly. So sometimes you have to have a space where you can mourn for the people um, mm -hmm. that have passed away and you know having we we all you know we're in natural hazards have that where we get very excited about something and then someone will remind you well a lot of people died and you're mm -hmm. like oh, yeah that's right sorry <laughs> I interrupt your listening pleasure to ask you if you're enjoying this podcast I ask because this series is a labor of love and if you like what you're hearing consider signing up as a Patreon supporter to see its continued success. Not only will you receive exclusive access to my private Facebook group, but also monthly live readings and moon ritual worksheets. Head over to patreon.com forward slash suburban witchery to sign up now. And now back to the show. Uh, you keep sort of mentioning that you're talking to these volcanoes or, that, or these natural things around you. Do you find that you're communicating with them? Like I, for example, would often communicate with a beautiful old tree that I find and I put my hand on it and I can hear responses with you know the psychic intuitive senses do you find that as well sometimes when you're working really closely with a volcano or a particular rock are you finding that back and forth communication or are you simply just speaking to it as if it was another being I would say sometimes and it depends a lot of times it feels like, you know, if you're in a market, you know, I live in Southeast Asia and, and there's a lot of languages here where you're trying to communicate and you're both speaking and you're both listening, mm -hmm. but sometimes the communication's not quite there. Uh, I think as a job, I think a good example of this is with trees. We know that trees actually do communicate with each other. They just don't communicate the same way we do. And so as a scientist, you're learning what language is being spoken, basically. You're learning how different things communicate. Um, and with a volcano or an earthquake, 
you know, there, there are things that happen that we can measure and we're learning what those mean and trying to decode those basically. So if it's a volcano that I'm mostly familiar with through data, then I'm listening mostly and trying to understand, but that volcano doesn't necessarily know me. And if I go visit it, it probably won't pay attention to me, mm -hmm. you know, but sometimes it, you do get the feeling of being paid attention to. Uh, and I think that that grows with time. You know, you also have to remember that these are, the earth is on a completely different time scale than we are, yeah. you know? So things maybe thousands of years apart and feel like a blink of an eye to a volcano. Mm -hmm. So earthquakes, if you speed up the time, you know, if you think of them like in terms of stop animation, this is kind of my favorite example. When you're doing stop animation, right? You have one bit of movement, you take a photo, move, photo, move, photo. We live in the photo. The movement is the earthquake. Mm -hmm. But if you speed it up on the scale of millions of years, it's just smooth movement, absolutely smooth. And so that's what the plates are doing is they're just smoothly moving past each other. We just happen to live in those photos. So we may be catching one movement at a time. So these time scales are really different. So you, I don't always expect that communication to be back and forth. I, I expect, I mean, like I talk to the birds out my window and they ignore me. You know, I kind of expect it like that, right? I talk and I listen, it talks, it may listen, it may not. And how, how close do you actually get to these volcanoes? Are you the people that we see in the silver suits that go really, really close taking samples or are you going there you know, in a less intense capacity? So my field is geophysics. So I do the instrumentation that gets installed. So what I do is I go out, I install things, and then I go sit in my office behind a computer in a safe spot. Mm -hmm. uh, my colleagues are the insane ones that go out and get rock samples. Mm -hmm. And they are absolutely insane. <laughs> I love them to pieces, but they are crazy. <laughs> um, so I'm the person that goes out and installs things and fixes things and then comes back and does all the data on the computer. Mm -hmm. um, so I do go out and work physically on volcanoes. And I do visit them sometimes just for fun, you know, different mm -hmm. ones. Um, but I'm not the one that's out there every single day. I do have colleagues that are, and they are absolutely phenomenal people. And they, they are the ones that really know the volcanoes because they're out there every single day. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely like a one or two times a year visit person. <laughs> yeah. Now, you have been referred to as having a level of expertise when it comes to crystal magic that is unrivaled in our community. And I have actually, I went and watched a few of your videos on your Instagram uh, when you're doing little tests and things like the pyrite in water and talking about crystal mm -hmm. elixirs and why that is a terrible idea and do not put pyrite in water. So can you share with us some of your favorite crystal magic techniques or tips that you might have? So um, I think most people get into rocks through crystals. So I think it's a good entryway. I personally work with just rocks. Um, so, you know, I of course got into it but through crystals and I took a mineralogy class and found all kinds of weird, interesting things. And then I realized that, you know, a rock actually has the entire history of the crystal plus the other crystals around it. And, you know, has this whole crazy um, history. So I, I personally work with rocks more than mm -hmm. just crystals. But when it comes to crystals, I think what's I've always tried to stress to people is that each individual crystal has a story. It has a story in how it was formed. 
it has its geologic history that it went through, and then it also has its human history. So how it was removed from the earth and how it got to your hands. So I've always stressed deciding what's important to you um, and knowing where your crystals come from. Mm -hmm. uh, I find that the best relationships I have with crystals are from ones I've collected myself. So I know where it came from. I have an emotional memory that goes with it because I remember where I was when I picked it up and it caught my eye and that's why I picked it up. So, you know, I've always really advocated for kind of collecting your own rocks around where you are, because also you're going to be able to connect deeply to the earth underneath your feet, because mm -hmm. that's what you have a piece of, you know, but it's also nice to have ones from maybe places you visited. Um, and in terms of like the elixir thing, you know, if you want to do something stupid, I'm not going to stop you. I do stupid things all the time. But I just think you should know how stupid it is first mm -hmm. and how dangerous. And remember that it's good not to put other people in danger. So, you know, if you're going to make a crystal elixir, make sure it's written down what you did. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you go to the emergency room, <laughs> they may not know what it was. So I think knowing what your rocks are is really important. Absolutely. That goes to not just knowing the name, but knowing the type of mineral it is. One of the things that I find a lot is now that crystals have become really popular is we have a proliferation of what I would call crystal names. So you have the mineralogic name, which is uh, basically controlled by an international organization. They have a defined uh, chemical composition. They have a defined crystal structure. And there's a lot of information about how they form, what environments they form in. And then Different ones will have different qualities. So you can think of quartz as a good example. You have clear quartz, you have you know white quartz, smoky quartz, rose quartz. These are all quartz. They all have different colors and expressions. They come from different places, but they're all the same mineral. So something like rose quartz or you know moonstone is another example. That's a feldspar. You know these are crystal names. And knowing the mineral name, I think, is also really important because it will tell you the chemical composition. And then you can look up the safety information. You can look up the storage information. Um, there are minerals that are absolutely gorgeous that you probably should not handle a lot. There are mm -hmm. minerals that should be kept in water because they will start to dry out. There are minerals like pyrite that can react with water and create acid. So, you know, it's just because something's a crystal and it's natural doesn't mean it's not dangerous. I mean, asbestos is a crystal. Um, arsenic comes from crystals, um, mercury we get from crystals. So just understanding, and I think respect is the best word for it. You need to really respect your rocks and respect where they come from. And especially the ones that can harm you. You know, there is a special kind of respect we have for things that can kill you. Uh, and I think that that's an important part to remember is that in general, it was not made for you. Mm -hmm. The crystal doesn't come into existence for you. It comes into existence for itself. And so you are creating a relationship with that rock. And so understanding where that rock comes from, I think is also really important. And that gets into, I did a two-part series on kind of the mining and uh, the background of where we get our crystals. Cause I think that's a really important aspect too. And understanding the uh, environmental impact, but also the human impact of the crystal industry. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I do say a lot as well in a lot of the content that I put out there that if you can get your crystals from someone who hand fossics these crystals, that is going yeah. to be the, the best way forward rather than 
bigger corporations that are basically pillaging the earth for the crystals. That's, I mean, if you're talking on an energetic level, it's not good energy as well. It's not good for the earth. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I talk about is, you know, it's also like what is most important to you? You know, for me, I think because I'm a geologist and I have a lot of friends that work in mining and I've worked in mining myself kind of the minor safety is kind of like the most important thing to me mm-hmm. because I have heard some crazy stories and I have seen some very unsafe things. And so if I don't collect it myself, I actually like to buy from rock hounds, people who mm-hmm. collect it themselves, because then I can also ask them their stories. And the stories are sometimes amazing. They do some crazy stuff, but you'll hear them be like, man, I found this mine and I had to like play <laughs> down into it and it was flooded. And I mean, just great stories that you have yeah. with this rock then. Um, and yeah, and I think, you know, beyond just, understanding where your crystals come from, I think you can expand that also to the raw materials that go into everything around you. You know, we're talking on computers. There's a lot of raw materials that come from mining in -hmm. your computer. Mm -hmm. And a lot of crystals actually are byproducts of those larger mines. A lot of the crystals that we have are kind of a secondary product of industrial mines for kind of more industrial materials. So something like a copper mine will have a lot of really pretty copper crystals Mm -hmm. um, that they can then sell. So, you know, I think being focused not just on the mining of the crystals, but also focusing on making sure that we, you know, are paying attention to where all of our raw materials are coming from. And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of people don't like the mine in my backyard thing, but I'm actually a fan of it because (laughs) where I've lived, there's regulations. And I would rather have a mine somewhere that actually has regulations. So there is some oversight than kind of pushing it out into some other place. So it's, it's one of those really complicated issues that I don't think we talk about enough. Um, because if you're thinking about where your crystals are coming from, that's a great start, but you should start thinking about where all the other raw materials around you are coming from. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that there are crystals in things more than just the rocks that we we buy and use, but things like our watches and our laptops and our phones right. have quartz in there as well. So they're, they're not just in the metaphysical crystal shop down the road. No, they're also building materials. I mean, I constantly get distracted in the malls here because they have gorgeous rocks, you know? And so like I, I've, I've posted quite a lot of photos of my feet because there's some absolutely amazing rocks that are just used in building materials. And do you have a favorite rock or a favorite crystal? Probably garnet and olivine. Mm-hmm. So um, olivine is also properly known as peridot. Yes, so I do know it by that name. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So olivine, I think is super cool because it's one of the minerals that makes up the majority of the planet. Um, mm. It's actually what the mantle is made of under our feet. So it's one of these minerals that we don't see as much on the surface, but if you look at the whole earth by volume, it's actually a huge part of it. Olivine. So that one is, it's a very light green. Is that correct? Yeah, it can be a very light green. It kind of has a bunch of different, depending on the exact composition, it can have different colors, Mm -hmm. colorations in it. And um, also the, I believe the stony meteorites have olivine in them too. So uh, I actually bought some extraterrestrial olivine. So I have terrestrial and extraterrestrial olivine. So fantastic. um, Yeah, it's, it's to me, it's just, it's one of the like basic constituents of the earth. And so Mm -hmm. that makes it just really special. 
well, I now have this beautiful image in my head of the earth and just, you know, under our feet is this gorgeous, you know, glimmering crystal that we're walking on, basically. It's quite lovely. I've never thought of it that way. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I would say another another um, way that my kind of being a geologist has influenced my spirituality is uh, I have on my website actually a meditation. It's a grounding meditation. And when I do my grounding, I go through each layer of the earth and down to the inner core. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think a lot of people focus on the crust because that's what we're familiar with. Mm -hmm. But you have to remember that the crust is a very small part of the actual planet. You know, the majority of the planet is the interior mm -hmm. that we don't actually get to see or interact with at all. So don't forget about that. Yeah, definitely. Now, I'm sure some people coming to say witchcraft from a more science-minded background, they can often be a little bit more skeptical in nature. So would you have any advice to them as someone who traverses both paths of science and paganism and witchcraft? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say you don't have to buy everything every people are selling. You know, you can go in and look at different things. I think there's a lot of research that shows that meditation is a really powerful tool. Um, visualization is actually something we use a lot in science as well. So there are these skills that I learned through being in this community that have been very beneficial in my life. And so you can start exploring that way. And I think when we're scientists, we're very much in the explanation side of things, focusing more on your emotional experience it's going to feel different. You know, things don't have to be true. You can do something and you can be like, I don't know why this works. And I don't actually believe that it works if you like really hold me to it, but it works. Mm -hmm. That's something that I found a lot is, you know, I, I will do something and I will be like, this is not going to work at all. You know, I just am like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Like, no, and then it works and you're like, holy shit, that worked. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't have an explanation and that's really hard. And that's something that you have to learn is yes. to be okay with things not having an explanation. Uh, and I think if you think of it in terms of uncertainty, that's something that we deal with a lot in science. And this is something else that has uncertainty. And it's something that people have come up with this language to explain and express their experiences. But at the end of the day, it's a big ball of uncertainty and we're all just poking at the edges. Mm -hmm. And so the language that we use to describe it is kind of individual to each person and you don't have to use someone else's language. You can just focus on kind of the emotion and the feeling and the core of what they're saying, not necessarily the specific words they're using. So it's a little bit of a different mindset, but it's very similar in that it's, it's an uncertainty, but not focused on the explanation, more on the experience. Yeah. Well, fantastic advice. And with your podcast, so Borealis Meditations, now is, what are you hoping people are going to be taking away from that? Is is that purely to, you know, pull people together from the science and pagany side? Are they, are you hoping that they expand on their spiritual experience? Is there a greater purpose behind you putting that out there? It's, um, it's, I think of it as more of like an educational tool. So um, I, I say in my intro that it's, it's like a starting point for people to kind of explore more. So I'm really hoping to kind of pique people's interests 
um, maybe, you know, I cover a subject and they get interested and they follow through. I'm really a big advocate of citizen science as well, getting involved in your community. Um, I think we're facing a huge problem when it comes with uh, global warming mm -hmm. and getting people kind of engaged in that. It can be a little scary to kind of be engaged in that, but kind of connecting back into the natural science community, because there are a lot of really good resources locally for people to learn about their environment, um, to do community outreach, you know, you can volunteer cleaning parks or, you know, like clearing trails and stuff like that. And kind of to kind of bring the communities back together. Cause I think that we have a lot in common in terms of the natural science community and the spiritual community, especially the pagan community. Great. And we could work together really well. Um, so I kind of think of it as it's, to me, it's an educational tool I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. um, but I hope that it kind of sparks curiosity in science and brings people back to science as well. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Now, lastly, if someone was just starting out in their craft, now, you know, you've been a pagan and a witch for many, many years. What is something that you would say to them to help them on their way? I would say that the tools you learn are very important and that there's a lot of books that will tell you how to do things. And if you think of it like cooking, the first time you make a cake, you have to follow the recipe. But after you've made hundreds of cakes, you kind of know what you're doing and you don't really need a recipe. So think of it like that. You know, you're going to start out with lists of associations. You're going to start out with like very um, specific lists of how to do specific spells. Not everything is going to resonate with you you're going to eventually find the flavor of paganism that is right for you and just experiment and pay attention to what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Uh, I like to keep little note cards and I write down if I try a spell, I write down the recipe and then on the back, I write my experience. And if it worked, I end up with lots of times I tried it on the back. And if it didn't work, then usually it's just one. I only tried it once. So taking notes and paying attention to yourself. Eventually you'll get to the point where you don't need an association list. You just pick up the rock that you know is right for what you're doing. And it's going to be, you know, it's, it's like the, the, it depends. It's the, it's personal to you. <laughs> I feel like is the pagan equivalent to that. So just remember that it's okay if you read a book and you get partway through and you're like, mm -hmm, I don't really like this. I don't really agree with this pick up another book, try something different. Just keep experimenting until you find the things that fit because you will find the thing that fits and you will find what works for you. Each of us has different skills and different ways. I don't expect everyone to talk to volcanoes. Um, some people talk with people. I don't talk with ghosts at all. <laughs> like the people thing is not my thing. It's a solid earth, right? So we, we all have different strengths and weaknesses and you don't have to do everything. Uh, just find what it is that's your strength. I love that. That is solid advice. Thank you very much for sharing. And thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us about what it is that you do in the world. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today, Kathleen. And I hope to have you on again next time. We can talk some more about volcanoes and maybe get into yeah. some more crystal sort of side of things. That would be fantastic. That would be great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. All right. And we'll chat again next time.